Well, good morning, Redeemer City. We are so glad to have you all here with us this morning. Uh, just a few announcements. Here at Redeemer City, we are all about gospel, community, and mission. And this gospel is not only welcoming us in by grace, it sends us out to be ambassadors that declare this good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to our neighbors, our friends, and our family. If you are new here or are interested in getting connected with um, Redeemer City, you can either, uh, we want you to fill out a connect card, and you can either do that physically here in person, you can go out to the kitchen um, by the foyer there, there's some connect cards that you can fill out, or you can go to RedeemerCityChurch.org under connect card and fill out the connect card that way. And this just gives you the opportunity to share any needs, prayer requests, or um, connect with one of our many city groups that meets throughout the week. And then lastly, we are less than two weeks away from the Madison Multiply Women's Conference, which is happening June 18th and 19th, and it's entitled Draw Near. So this year we are focusing on prayer, and this will just allow you a chance to connect with women from other, our other two churches of the Madison Multiply uh, Eastside and the Vine, as well as other area churches in the Madison area as well. So if you're interested in this and you haven't signed up yet, we would love for you to check out our Slack channel, RC Family Updates, and that's where you can get more information on it and also uh, click on the link to sign up for it. Our reading this morning is from Romans 7, 1 through 25. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by, that, by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in, an, in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetness. covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive of the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." Well, hey, good morning. My name is Nate. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, so, what a text, huh? Um, <laughs> sounds a little bit like Dr. Seuss at times, but um, we are in a series in Romans, and we've hit chapter 7, and just to pick up where we've been, chapter 6, Paul brought us this good news of the gospel that not only does the gospel of God free us from the penalty of sin, but it also frees us from the power of sin. But Romans 7 reminds us that even though we're free from the power of sin through the gospel, the reality is there's still a fight with sin. Uh, J.C. Ryle once put it this way, and I'll, I'll kind of personalize this. He said this, you and sin must quarrel if you and God are to be friends. You and sin must quarrel if you and God are to be friends, that there's a fight, that there's a struggle. And one of the things about Romans 7, it's not just this rich theological treatise, it actually gets very personal. I mean, just let me reread for a moment verses 18 and 19 where, where Paul writes this, "'For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out.'" For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And, you know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're just stepping in or you're, you're tuning in online, those words sound strange. It almost sounds like, Paul, what's your deal? Why do you have such low self-esteem? But, but let me submit to you, as you orient yourself to the Scriptures, the narrative arc is one in which this good God made this good world. But then our parents rebelled, and we have been in rebellion ever since. And so it would make sense that the road back to who we were created to be at some point is going to involve a struggle. It's going to involve a fight. And I would submit to you today that if you're a Christian this morning, at some point, at some place in your life, those words that Paul has written are not hard to relate to. So Romans 7, I want to submit to you today, gives us four things to orient a Christian to this struggle with sin. And the first is, Romans 7 tells us who you belong to in the fight. Secondly, it tells us what the problem is that lies deep, deep beneath the surface in this fight. 
Thirdly, it tells us who you really are in the fight. And lastly, it gives us two things to sustain us in this fight. So let me pray, and we'll get in. Father, um, we come to you today, and some of us feel uh, defeated. (laughs) Uh, Some of us feel quite discouraged (laughs) in this struggle. Lord, some of us, um, this has been a hard road. But we pray during this time that you would take your word and that you would apply it to our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, who do you belong to in this fight? Um, Paul says a lot in the first six verses, but the, the kind of central point is found in verse 4. Look at, look at what Paul writes in verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul says this, when, when you put your trust in Jesus and his work for you in the life, death, and resurrection of what he's done, you are transferred. You now belong to him. And the result of this, the, the purpose of that is that you might bear fruit to God. And what's interesting is to illustrate this point, in the first three verses, Paul used this, used this metaphor of marriage. Um, let me just look at verse 2 for a moment. Paul says this, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. <clears throat> Paul is saying this, but before you were a Christian, you were actually married. You were bound, obligated to the law and all of its things. So the wages of sin is death if you're under the law. You're obligated to that. But when you become a Christian... You are now bound to Christ. You are set free from that obligation to the law. And this is, seems very heady here, but Paul's talking about this new union we have with Christ. He's been talking about it through a number of chapters, but it's actually very practical when, it gets, when we start talking about this struggle with sin. And, and it's something we kind of all know. First of all, it means this. Like marriage, when you become a Christian, all of you, not just a part of you, belongs to Jesus. All of you, not just a part of you, belongs to Jesus. So when Amanda and I got married, we just celebrated this last week, 21 years of being married. On that day when we made those, that, that covenant, those vows, what that meant was legally, socially, physically, emotionally, we were one. It was a binding covenant We didn't leave any of those pieces outside of this relationship. When I vow to forsake all others, right? It was saying, no one else, it's just you. And let me put another light. When I got married, let's just be honest, I lost some independence and freedom, right? If you're married, you know this. Like, when you get married and someone, you know, like your friends call you up, like, hey, you want to hang out? And you're like, let me check with my wife for a moment. You know, so you can't just do it. You have to talk with her. Um, we, we had to work out a budget together. And I remember it was like this new thing where it was like in our budget line, there was a budget line for beauty. That was never there before, right? Never there. 
But when you get married, right, it, you're, you're one. So no part of your life remains unaffected. In the same way, when you become a Christian, all of you belongs to Him. So in other words, you can't just say, well, I'm just going to give Jesus a part of my life. Right? Like, you belong to Him. You were purchased. You were bought. It means when you become a Christian, you handle sex and money and power and your vocation and your relationships and your speech and everything else. It all belongs to Him. It is meant to bear fruit to God, not to bear fruit for death. All those things change. You steward, you relate to all those things differently. And think about this for a moment. That may sound constraining for some of you, right? Like, wait, wait, you're saying when I become a Christian, I lose freedom, independence? Absolutely you do. But in the best possible way. I mean, think for a moment. Think of two different kinds of, of husbands for a moment. Think of husband number one, one whose relationship with their spouse is one where it arouses attitudes and actions that are self-destructive and ultimately leads the spouse toward a path where she is not who she's meant to be. But then secondly, think about another husband who loves and serves and lays down his life for his bride, patiently attending to her needs, and slowly but patiently working in this relationship so that this spouse, so that his bride might become who she was always meant to be. Who would you rather be married to? Paul is is saying here, if, if you put your trust in Christ, you belong to him, a spouse who has laid himself out for you. He has not withheld anything. Think about it. He has laid it all down on the line. He is all in in this relationship. There is nothing he has not sacrificed. You belong to him, all of you, not a piece. In your struggle with sin, that means every area of your life is on the table. Let me ask you, Christian, this morning, what what would be different in your life right now if that was applied to your life? If all of your life was submitted to Him, not just this piece, and I'm going to hold this thing back, but all of it. What would be different? But this, this dynamic of belonging to Christ, it, it also changes this motivation for actually obeying. Uh, in verse 6, uh, Paul says this. He says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written Code. Paul's going to expand on this in chapter 8, but Cliff Notes version here. When Paul talks about serving a new way of the Spirit, Paul is, Paul is referring to this, that in the Christian's work, when in, in, in the Spirit's work in a Christian's life, it means this, that you want to please Christ. The Spirit always wants to please Christ. 
In a great marriage, you know that it's not this self-serving, but it's this self-giving. In a great marriage, it's this dying to self and going, what does my spouse want? What does my spouse need? How do I serve her? There's this reciprocal relationship. That's when it's at its best. And here's the point. It's not, it's not obeying out of fear. Unless you obey, this, this, this spouse is going to reject you. He's already laid it all down, forgiven you, accepted you, welcomed you in, but it's in response to that costly love that in response you say, how do I please you? Not to earn your love, but in response to it. It flips the script on why you do what you want to do, why you do what you do, why you obey. Christian, how would your life look different in this fight? If you knew that Jesus was not scowling at you, saying, get your act together, but loved you and was for you, how would that change your motivation? So orientation number one to this struggle with sin is that you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him. To bear fruit to God. But secondly, Paul begins to show us what the problem is that lies deep, deep beneath the surface in this fight. So in verses 7 to 13, Paul is having to explain himself. Because if you'll notice in the previous section, he said, you've, you've died and been released from the law. And so the question is, wait, wait, is the problem the law? Is that the problem? Is that what's going on here? Is that why I'm, I am who I am? And... Um, Look what Paul says in verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. And I'll stop there for a moment. But so, so Paul's saying, Listen, guys, the problem is not the law. So, what is the problem? And we actually see it throughout this passage in what Paul chooses to use as an example for the law. In verse 8, of all the Ten Commandments Paul picks, he picks the one that cannot be reduced to merely externals. Paul says, he picks this, he says, you shall not covet. Think about that for a moment. That is completely an issue of the heart. To covet means to have an idolatrous desire for something you don't have. Maybe it's beauty, maybe it's approval, maybe it's power, maybe it's influence, but it's to look at that and say, unless I have that, I want more of that, and if I don't get that, it means to wallow in pity. That's why Paul chooses do not covet. Because although the foreground is this topic of the law, Paul is beginning again to remind us of how deep beneath the surface this battle is and how you can't just deal with it with externals. You can't just deal with it with just rules or commands. It's not good enough. Education, though good, is not sufficient for this fight. The last part of seven, Paul reveals, Paul shows us that the law reveals the depth of the problem of sin. Uh, He says this, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You know, think for a moment of, you know, these, these beautiful sunny days, and you see the sun shining through the window, and I see it above our end table, and I look right above, and there's all these little particles. They're just floating there. And I didn't see them until the sun is shining through. It's dust particles. The sun, the light, did not produce the dust particles. It just exposed it. It was already there. It was always there. One of the things the law does, right, it shines light. It shows us what's already there. It shows us how what we need, we need help from the outside because it shows us our sin. But secondly, the law, and let me be careful here, provokes sin. Doesn't produce, but it provokes sin. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What is happening here? This relationship between sin and the law and all of a sudden sin coming alive when the law comes. Paul's saying this, because of our rebellious hearts, when a command comes, we actually desire to do that which is forbidden. It provokes it. It's not the law's fault, but it provokes it. One of the most iconic or historical pictures of this is Augustine, this fourth century dark-skinned bishop in his book Confessions. He writes about a time in his youth in which he and some friends went to a vineyard to steal pears. And listen to what he writes. Near our vineyard, in other words, he already had a vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit. Though the fruit was not particularly attractive either in color or taste, I and some other youths conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit that we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better pairs of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away, and all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. Oh, man. That's from the fourth century. Augustine confessing his struggle and his battle and why he did what he did and realizing it's because he, in, in, in a sense, it's, it was just fun to do. We knew it was wrong. One commentator summarized it this way. We have a deep desire to be in charge of the world and of our lives. We want to be sovereign and every law God lays down is an infringement on our absolute sovereignty. And sin is a force that hates that infringement. I mean, think for a moment, kids, right? You know when your parents say like, hey, do not do this or don't touch that, how in that very moment it almost is like, oh, well, there you go, right? Like you, by the way, adults deal with that too, but I mean, you know. So the, the, the battle... This struggle with sin, it, 
It lies deep, deep beneath the surface, the very heart, at our very hearts. The problem is not the law. The problem is far beneath the surface. The sin that dwells within, it has to do with our hearts. And that means if you think the problem deals primarily with externals, then you don't understand where the battle's being waged. And you don't actually know what you need to win. We need more than morals, more than rules, more than education. You'll understand if that's the case and you need something outside of yourself to assist you in this struggle with sin. All right. Thirdly, Paul tells us who a Christian is in the fight. Look, listen to what Paul writes of his own experience in verses 14 to 17. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate to do. But, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Think for a moment. This is interesting. Paul, at this point in this text, there's actually some debate upon whether Paul is talking about himself before he became a Christian or whether it's his present experience. I would submit to you it's, it's the latter. Um, one of the main reasons for this is actually in verse 14, he changes his um, grammar tense to a present tense. He was speaking in past tense before, and now he goes present tense right now. And that means in one way or another, Paul's saying, this is presently how I struggle with my sin. But what's interesting, notice how Paul says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He actually says the very same thing in verse 20, repeats himself. Now, just think for a moment with me. Like, is Paul saying that he's not responsible for what he does? Like, hey, I know I did something bad there, but that was a sin in me. I'm, that, that's not really me. Paul's not doing that. Okay, so what is Paul doing? And here it is. Paul is making a clear distinction between who he is from what he feels. Paul is making a clear distinction from who he is from what he feels. Um, listen, we live in a modern culture that says who you are is precisely what you feel. What you want, that's who you are. And Paul is making a distinction here. Notice he's struggling with these desires. He's struggling with saying, that's not who I am. That is sin. Who I am is someone different. And here's where I submit to you what Paul is doing here. Paul's, Paul's doing this. In the midst of this battle... A Christian needs to rest in his identity in who they are in Christ and what Christ has done. In other words, when Paul says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, Paul is saying, because I belong to Christ, I am righteous and I am forgiven, and someday when Christ returns or I die and I am up with him, sin that's in me, it'll no longer be present. 
Therefore, that's not ultimately who I'm becoming or ultimately who I am. I am rooted in Christ. Think about this for a moment, how significant this is. When you're struggling with sin, when you have desires, who are you in that moment? Are you who you feel? Or are you who you know you are by faith in Christ? And this is profoundly practical. Um, Eric Thienes, he's a professor of biblical and theological studies. He writes this, there is this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy, but that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy, to live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel isn't hypocrisy, it's integrity. So I know we're, this is like, this chapter is rich and it's gnarly and it's deep and it takes a while to soak this in, but think about this way for a moment. Let's say that you're dealing with just the idea of coveting. Someone has the house or the spouse or someone has the looks or the job or whatever else. And in the midst of that, you are tempted towards self-pity. I don't have that. You're tempted towards malicious thoughts. How do they have that? You need to recognize something. Because you belong to Christ, Jesus says something like this. He says, I, your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Why are you coveting? Why would you covet when, when I've given you the kingdom? You have it all. Why would you want more? And here's where it slices, because in that moment you have a choice. What are you going to do with self-pity and malicious thoughts and self-loathing and all that stuff? What do you do in that moment? Because that's what you feel. Like, that's what you feel. And you can go down that road. But that road leads to death. So here's what you do. You turn the corner. And listen, you turn the corner and you begin to practice thankfulness. Do you see where this lands? Like, just check this for a moment. You practice thankfulness, even though your heart isn't there. Does that make sense? Because of who you are in Christ, you're actually leaning into what you have in Christ. You begin to practice thankfulness. God, thank you for what you have given me in Christ. That corner turns. And this is the part, because some of you go, but that's not how I feel. I feel like I'm faking it. Well, guess what? You are faking it in the moment, but you're leaning into who you are in Christ. That's actually leaning to be a person of integrity because of what the Scripture says. This is who you are, therefore I'm going to lean into who I am, not what I feel. Do you see how that sets things apart? And listen, our culture is jacked up because it just says, I want to live with integrity, this is how I feel. But listen, we know who Christ is, we know what He's done, therefore we stand there. And we lean into that. Romans 7, Paul opening up his struggle. He, he's saying, this is, this is not me. This is sin that dwells within me. This is really who I am. And therefore I lean in, I, I, I go in that direction. 
All right, last thing. Two things to sustain us in the fight. Um, look at verses 23 and the first part of 24. Paul says this, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Um, first a warning to sustain you. Um, I don't know how you feel about this, but it's alarming that Paul is speaking about himself that way in a moment, right? Wretched man that I am. Paul, how can you say that? Aren't you improving? Aren't you getting better? Aren't you obeying Christ more? Aren't you growing? And here's the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. is actually Christian maturity actually is you being more aware of your sin. It sounds counterintuitive, but think about it for a moment. As you grow in your relationship with Christ, as you grow in your knowledge of who He is and what He's done, and His holiness, you begin to understand the depth of your sin, even to a greater degree. But here's what's interesting. It, in the gospel, it doesn't lead to this I hate myself, or I look down on myself, because it actually leads to a greater appreciation for what Christ has done. It actually leads to more worship of who He is and what He's done. And here's the point, like, although the, the, the trajectory of becoming a Christian and growing, yes, you're growing in maturity and, and sanctification and obedience to Christ, nevertheless, even though you're going that direction, you become more and more aware of your sin. Therefore, maturity is, is this. It seems counterintuitive, but this is what it is. In other words, the next time you're back at that same spot dealing with the same sin, don't say, man, how could I be here again? How could I have done that again? But rather say, okay, I guess this just confirms that I really do need Jesus. <laughs> like, ultimately, really. Like, it really means you just, you really need Jesus. The gospel's true. Yes, take a look inside and check your heart and, and work through motives and all those different things and fight sin, but it means in that moment, for a moment, get your eyes off of yourself. And that's where the, less, the, the last thing is. The, the second piece to sustain you is the hope. Because how does Paul answer the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Look at what he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is saying in the midst of this struggle with sin, you have a deep assurance, a deep assurance that you are his, that you are forgiven, that you are cleansed, that you're adopted, that you're in the family, that your standing in this fight is secure, not because of your performance, but because there has, there has been one who's already won the war. Um, years ago, I was working with a young man who was struggling with his past, and he lived a life where he was deeply ashamed of what he had done. And it was one of those things where, especially when you're a young Christian, and you're beginning to walk with Jesus, it's like those things just keep clipping, right? Like those things, this is what I did, this is what I did. 
And it was some really bad stuff. I remember one night he just texted me, and he's just, he's just dealing with it. So I sent him a quote by Martin Luther, and this is what it said. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? <laughs> For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. That's uh, 16th century smack talk, you know, <laughs> right? What of it? Sure, everything he said is true, but guess what's, what also is true? I'm with Christ. He's won the war. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to pretend that I'm something I'm not. Because I know who my, who, who's, who's I am. Let that sustain you. Listen, if, if you're not a Christian, let me submit to you this. Right now. Do you know that there is a God who has come down in the person and work of Jesus to set you free, to set you free from that which enslaves you, which means this morning, this, here's the deal, you're not free. And the path to freedom is not your performance. It is resting and it's relying on the work of another who has gone before you in the person and work of Jesus. That is your one and only hope. Do you know this? Will you trust this? And Christian, let me ask you this morning, where's, where's the fight? Where's the fight? Where's the battle right now in your life? Do you know? What do you need to take with you this morning? Maybe it's that you belong to Christ, all of you, not just a part of you. Maybe there's an area of your life you need to just lay down and submit and go, this area I've been holding back well, I need to lay it down and submit to him. Maybe you've been dabbling with this externals. You need to understand that the, the, the battle's far deeper than you think. It's your very heart. Maybe you need to, in the moment, understand that you are more than what you feel. There's actually truth that you can root yourself in. Your identity is not based on what you feel. Your identity is based on who Jesus is and what he's done, and you stand there. Or maybe you just need to be assured, in one way or another, that growth is counterintuitive. Maybe you're growing more aware of your sin and you're just discouraged. Guess what? That's the normal path of growth. <laughs> be encouraged. Or maybe this morning you feel defeated. And you need to rest in the assurance that you're his. What do you need? Lastly, let me close with this. Um, we are a community that tries to live out this dynamic of not just individual lives following Jesus, but, but work it out together. I'm reminded of uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, we had our guys' time with our city group. And the one question was, where's the fight? Where's the battle? 
It was just a moment where each one of us went around and we just shared, it's here, it's here, it's here. And we just closed out the night praying for one another. But not only that, saying we, we can't just let this stay here. We have to walk with each other throughout the week and the month and the year together. This is not a fight we do by ourselves. So let me ask you, who's, who's in the fight with you? Who's next to you? Who knows where the struggle is? That's what we're trying to cultivate here. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we just give you thanks that though we are in this struggle, our victory is in you. And we give thanks to you this morning that you have not left us without hope. You've not left us without your word. Lord, please take that which what we need today and help us to move forward in this struggle, in this fight with sin. We ask this in your name. Amen.